Christ that you'll lead me and I will follow you all of my days. You may be seated. Good evening. You know, for the last couple of years, we've had a rather lengthy prayer list. We've had a lot of deaths. We've had a lot of sickness. I guess when you get larger in size, you probably have more of those things. But I think it's also good, while we do pray for those and continue to pray for those who are sick and afflicted, that it's good to recognize those that have uh, gotten a good report. You know, Tim Chanel led a prayer up here just a week or so ago after undergoing colon surgery for colon cancer, you know, and got a great report that he is clear, um, no chemotherapy or radiation needed. Sonny Shockey got some great news that she is clear, and that is good. Um, we, we have some good news to celebrate as well, and I want you to keep those on uh, your heart and in your prayers that are still struggling, and also let's thank God for those um, who are doing better and feeling better and got a good report. I also want to say this to you before we start with the lesson. Um, you might have been a little confused this morning, but let, let me let you know that the one-word series that we're doing, we won't go over every word, and I guess I probably should have said that at the beginning, but you know, there's only so many uh, weeks, and we had equip, which kind of threw us off a little bit. And we have some other things uh, during the year that we will either skip a word or rearrange the way that we do it, the order. Uh, for instance, the word proclaim that you'll find later on in the series, we're going to do on Preacher Training Camp Sunday, because I think that's a better fit. And then, of course, this series was done last year, so in order to make Resurrection fit Easter Sunday, Mothers fit Mother's Day, Fathers fit Father's Day, there has to be a little bit of rearranging. And so hopefully you'll be patient with that. And uh, I was telling Jim Haller before services, I'll try to make that available to you and give you a heads up. We do that on Facebook, but if you're not on Facebook, you wouldn't know that. And so uh, I'll try to do my best to give you a heads up uh, for the word of the week. And that way you can uh, either read ahead or read behind it, whatever the case is, and uh, you'll, be, you'll be up to speed. So thank you for being patient about that. I should have said that from the very beginning, but uh, we will uh, rearrange the order a little bit and maybe even skip some words. Tonight we're looking at Zephaniah as part of our major lessons for minor prophets. And I want to start by asking you this. Have you ever been involved in a project where you're working through it and you have this vision in your mind of what the end result is going to be, but you just can't make it come together? You ever been there and done that? I cannot tell you how many half-written sermons are on my computer. Because I've sat down at the beginning of the week and I intended to come up with this good sermon that I could see a vision for and I, I had trouble bringing it all together and so I walked away from it for a little while. I set it aside. I maybe came back to it and tried to rework it and fill in some gaps. But at the end of the day, I just couldn't make it work. And I have several sermons like that, half-written sermons on, on my computer. Because sometimes, no matter what you do, you just can't make it come to fruition. And sometimes the best thing to do is just blow it up and start over, right? You ever been there? You look at renovation or tweaking something and you say, you know what? I'm halfway into this thing and it's better off if I just blow it up and start over. 
That's what Zephaniah was dealing with. There's this vision that, that maybe we have of a certain project or bringing something about, and, and before we can get it to where it needs to be, we come to realize, you know what? We're beating a dead horse here. It's time to do something different. Zephaniah is a minor prophet who lived during the last decades of the southern kingdom. During this time, King Josiah was trying to bring about wholesale changes. He was a reformist king. He was trying to bring about wholesale changes by removing the idols and restoring temple worship. But Israel was too far gone. God's people were so entrenched in idolatry that even though Josiah was able to make some big changes... God eventually blew it up and started all over. And Zephaniah saw all this coming, and he had been warning the people for years. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 1, it reads, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated his guests. Now, the book of Zephaniah can really be broken down into three main sections. And in the first section, we have judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. The second section, we have judgment on the surrounding nations and on Jerusalem again. And then we have in the third section, hope for restoration. So we're kind of following this theme that we have been following all along in the Minor Prophets. You have judgment or the day of the Lord. And then you have this hope, this silver lining that eventually things are going to get better. The first section is really a reversal of Genesis chapter 1 when you think about it. God's good world of order and peace is going to revert back to darkness, disorder, and disarray. The world will become uninhabitable. Zephaniah is waxing poetic. He's using these poetic images to describe how Jerusalem's world is going to end. All the places where the people worshipped idols are going to be destroyed. All the leaders who promoted violence all the economic sinners that promoted unjust practices, all of them will be demolished. And then, of course, the city walls will be destroyed. City walls were important. Wall around a city protected that city from intruders. It protected them from being attacked. It kept the city safe. And yet, it was all going to be blown up. And God was going to start all over. And Zephaniah speaks in sort of an apocalyptic tone as he details the tragedy that's about to happen. God's wrath and judgment are described as a mighty army that is about to take down Jerusalem. Look at verses 14 through 18. It says, Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord, in it the warrior cries out bitterly, a day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and the high corner towers. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to deliver them. On the day of the Lord's wrath, and all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. Now maybe the question is, what army is this? We might assume from what we've studied already in this series that it was Babylon, the Babylonian army. But Zephaniah doesn't make that distinction. 
And perhaps the reason why is because it doesn't matter. Because the point of it all is that God is really behind it, and he's the one motivating it. So it doesn't matter what army it is. We can speculate about that. But the whole idea is that God is the one who's truly bringing about this destruction. And if you look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, we read these words. It says, Gather yourselves together, yes, gather, O nation without shame, before the decree takes effect. The day passes like the chaff, before the burning anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth who have carried out his ordinances. Seek righteousness, seek humility. Perhaps you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. And so although Jerusalem as a whole cannot avoid this this wrath of God, Zephaniah calls on anyone who is faithful to the Lord, and he says, seek the Lord, all you humble of the earth. These are going to make up the faithful remnant of God's people who will be spared. Those who humble themselves before God, who come to him in humble repentance. So in this section, we see this judgment theme carry on. A common theme throughout the minor prophets. The cause for God's wrath is a common theme as well. In broad terms, the people were disobedient. But specifically... They shared the same sins that we see discussed over and over again in these minor prophets. They worshipped idols. They were unjust. They had gone astray. They were immoral in their practices. And no one who does these things without repenting ever escapes the wrath of God, even in this day and age. Grace kind of gives us the idea that maybe God has softened on sin, but not the case. Justice delayed is not justice denied. So even those evil nations, even those corrupt leaders, even those people today who are involved in immoral practices or idolatry, they won't escape God's wrath unless they humbly repent. Now section 2 takes a wider focus. Zephaniah broadens his message to include the surrounding nations. And so now we have the Philistines, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Assyrians. They're all named in this report. And they are guilty of violence and corruption as well. They too practiced wickedness. And if you look at verses 8 and 9, it says, I have heard the taunting of Moab and the revilings of the sons of Ammon with which they have taunted my people and become arrogant against the territory. Therefore, as I live, declares the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab will be like Sodom and the sons of Ammon like Gomorrah, a place possessed by nettles and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The remnant of my people will plunder them and the remainder of my nation will inherit them. Now, what's interesting is if you notice over in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, you see that Jerusalem is included in this warning of destruction, which doesn't surprise us all that much because we know in section 1 that they are the object of his coming and his wrath. But what's interesting is God seems to make no distinction here between Jerusalem and Assyria. Remember what we've said about Assyria. They were the most ruthless, malicious, and brutal people of that day and age. No one even rivaled them, even came close to their brutality. And God lumps his people in with him? I mean, that's a scary thought. We've talked about how murderous these people were, and yet 
God seems to make no distinction between them and his own people. It's as if the priest and the prophets and the leaders are so violent and so corrupt that God doesn't even recognize them as his own anymore. If you look at chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it reads, Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the tyrannical city. She heeded no voice. She accepted no instruction. She did not trust in the Lord. She did not draw near to her God. Her princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves at evening. They leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests have profaned the sanctuary. They have done violence to the law. And then section 2 ends with God gathering these rebellious nations together, including Jerusalem, and pouring out his indignation and his burning anger. Because God is a consuming fire. And this consuming fire devours all the evil in the world. Now, the book could end right there, and we would totally understand, wouldn't we? I mean, they deserved what they got. A holy God has to punish sin. A righteous God will not stand for unrighteousness. We know that God is not going to put up with unholiness. He's not going to put up with immorality, idolatry. I mean, if they committed no other sin, the fact that they turned away from God and turned towards these worthless idols was enough to endure his wrath. And so the book could end right there and we completely understand. But it doesn't. And like we see throughout these minor prophets, there is a silver lining. There is hope. If you notice in verse 9 and 10, right after he says, For all the earth will be devoured by the fire of my zeal, he then writes, For then I will give to the people's purified lips, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord to serve him shoulder to shoulder from beyond the rivers of Ethiopia. My worshipers, my dispersed ones, will bring my offerings. Don't these words seem a little out of place based on what we've already read? I mean, is God fickle? Can he not make up his mind? I mean, what is it, God? Are you wanting to punish? Are you wrathful? Are you angry? Or have you softened? Are you taking a lighter stance now? I mean, what gives? I mean, it, it almost presents a bipolar kind of God here. But that's not the case, of course. God's wrath was to be a wake-up call. And what we don't always see or maybe fail to comprehend is that God's wrath is a means to an end. This isn't about God just giving the people what they deserve. It's not just about him getting his revenge. This is a purifying process. It's a purging as well. All those wicked individuals who refuse to turn to God will pay for their disobedience. But for those who turn away from evil and turn toward God, there is this hope of restoration. God is going to transform the nations into one unified family. After being purified, they will turn from their evil and call on the name of the Lord. And do you see where this is headed? I mean, based on on the messages that we have discussed in the Minor Prophets so far, do you see the application for God's people living in this day and age? All of this is pointing to the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. 
the conclusion of Zephaniah's prophecy focuses on the restoration of Jerusalem. God is there in the restored city along with the faithful remnant that has been humbled and transformed. And they are told to sing and rejoice. But notice something else. They're not the only ones singing. Who else is singing? God is. They're singing praises to God, and God is singing praises to His people. Isn't that beautiful? Notice what it says, starting in verse 14. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away His judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. In that day, it will be said to Jerusalem, Do not be afraid, O Zion. Do not let your hands fall limp. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. I will gather those who grieve about the appointed feast. They came from you, O Zion. The reproach of exile is a burden on them. Behold, I am going to deal at that time with all your oppressors. I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you renown and praise among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God is going to gather up the poor and the wretched and the lame and the blind and the the dregs of society and the third wheels and and all of these folks. and And he's going to bring them into his kingdom. And within this message, Zephaniah paints a very intense picture of God. First, there is the justice of God. And this image shows the passion that God has for the world that he created. Not only that, it shows his passion for those that he he is going to rescue from this world of darkness and violence and evil. But this justice isn't merely for the purpose of satisfying his vengeance. This isn't about God getting even or even taking pleasure in the destruction. This justice has a goal. And that goal is restoration. God purges the wicked from among those that he loves so that he can create a world where people can live in peace and be free from the fear of evil. But secondly, we see another intense image, and that is the love of God. And again, it may seem bipolar on the surface, but these two aspects of God are a perfect marriage. God's justice and God's love are beautifully intermingled. It's his love that gives his justice, power, and significance. Zephaniah forces us to hold these two aspects of God together, and these attributes together speak to us, don't they? We are the remnant. We are the new Israel. We are God's chosen people now. Because we are heirs according to promise, as Paul wrote in Galatians 3. We are Abraham's descendants. We are in this new kingdom. The things that Zephaniah has talked about and the other minor prophets that we've been discussing, what they were talking about, we're living it right now. This Christian age, the kingdom is here. Jesus, our king, has come. The Messiah has come. 
And those of us who are children of God, who have been immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of our sin, we've been grafted into the kingdom. You no longer get into the kingdom because of your heritage or because you were born into the right heritage. Now, being a part of the kingdom is about putting on Christ, clothing yourself with Christ, coming to Him in faith, and having that faith move you to repentance and confessing Jesus as Lord and being buried with Him in baptism, rising to walk in newness of life. And for those who are faithful unto death, get to dwell with God forever. When you read the Bible from now on, read it that way. Because you're a part of the story. You do realize the Bible is one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. It's a story of redemption. And we see snapshots of it with the minor prophets. We were once exiled. We were once cut off. But now we are the faithful remnant. And we get to live in his kingdom. Jesus' message was, I am the king, I am the Christ, I am here to establish my kingdom and to gather the remnant, the humble, the meek, the ones who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the ones that are not prideful and arrogant. Jesus was coming to gather both Jew and Gentile to bring them into his kingdom. And what we read about in Zephaniah is what Jesus came to bring about. How does that change your Bible reading? How does it change your reading of the story of the Bible when you include yourself in that narrative? Because if you are a saved child of God, you are a part of that bigger story. Notice again the prophet's words. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. When is this? It's now. It's here. Since Pentecost, we are living in the kingdom of our Lord, and God's instruction to us is this. Shout for joy, O daughter of Zion. That's us. We are the daughters of Zion. Shout in triumph, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You will fear disaster no more. The fact that the Lord is in your midst should change everything. It should change the way you live, the way you function in this world. It should change the way you see everything. Not just the way you read the Bible, but the way that you live. You see, there are things in this life that we enjoy. And there are things in this life that we hate. We want to see, we want to see a, good, a good person in the White House. We want to see moral people on the Supreme Court. We, we don't like it when someone is, is unjust in their dealings with us. We don't like it when someone takes advantage of us. We don't want to see corrupt leaders. We don't want to see people turning away from God. We don't want to see our culture divided by race or by anything else for that matter. But at the end of the day... Whatever you like and whatever you despise, it's not going to matter. Because at the end of the day, the Lord is in your midst. And when it's all said and done, we have nothing to fear. What a beautiful message that is. It's easy to get caught up in the here and now. 
And in some ways, we probably should, right? I mean, we're only being good stewards when we take, when we, when we take responsibility for things here on this earth. But when we get too caught up in it, to the point that we get so consumed that we forget the bigger picture, that we lose sight of our number one purpose, well, then that's a problem. Because as kingdom dwellers, we have to remember that we are the remnant, that we are to be faithful unto death, and the Lord is in our midst. And because the Lord is in our midst, we have a hope like no other. One day, all the injustice, all the ills of our world, all the things that are immoral, all the wrongs will be made right. If kingdom living is not your number one purpose and priority, then what happens in this earthly kingdom doesn't steal your focus and rob you of your joy. I mean, kingdom living should be the number one thing. It should be everything to us. It should be our number one purpose and priority. And if it's not, then we get too caught up in the things of this life and, and we get drugged down and, and we start being a product of our culture. And rather than being a light in a dark world, we, we blend in. We become a spiritual chameleon and we're not making a difference any longer. We need to be a people who understand what it means to live in the kingdom, to pursue that first and his righteousness you don't live in fear because the Lord is in your midst. And that makes all the difference. We're going to be okay. But you do realize, when you go over to the New Testament, and you see from the day of Pentecost forward, and you see that, that we are living in these last days, this Christian age, and you see Paul talking in his epistles about various things, things concerning the church concerning his people he often references the old testament and israel and talking about not repeating their mistakes and things of that nature you know all that these are instructions for kingdom people paul's not talking to people who are lost what's well, the book of romans or galatians he's not talking to people who need to be baptized he's talking to people who have been baptized and what's he telling him? Don't forget it. Remember it. You're a part of the kingdom now. You're to live out your baptism. Maybe you're not doing that. Maybe you're someone who is, who is not a faithful kingdom dweller. And maybe you need the prayers and support of this church family tonight. Maybe you want to know more about what it means to be a kingdom dweller. Maybe you're ready to start that journey tonight, and we want to help you with that as well, because it's the most important thing. There are a lot of things in this life that are important, and a lot of things that we can get conned into believing are most important. But the only thing that really matters in this life is, are you a New Testament Christian? Are you a part of his kingdom? And if you're not, and you're contemplating that, and you want to study with someone, or maybe... You're ready to be immersed. Do that tonight. Don't leave here without being right with God. Caleb's going to lead us in a song. If you have a need, come as we stand and as we sing.
shirt on our way while we do.